The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 20, of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience, Paragraphs 3 and 4. They who, under pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that, being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Paragraph 4 And because the power which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God, and for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship or conversation, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them, are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ hath established in the church. They may lawfully be called to account, and proceeded against by the censures of the church, and by the power of the civil magistrate. As we have seen, chapter 20 deals with the Christian's liberty. Christ has set us free from sin, from the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. Indeed, he has set us free in our conscience. Our conscience is that sense of divine judgment, and as we heard last time out, our conscience is free from the commandments and doctrines of men. However, as we speak of our liberty, our liberty still has bounds, and the final paragraphs of chapter 20 deal with the limits of our liberty. As we get into paragraph 3, it is abundantly clear that Christian liberty does not allow us to practice any sin or cherish any lust. If this is the case, the Westminster Divines tell us that such an approach will actually destroy the end of Christian liberty. And so any believer who says, I have been set free by Christ and I can live whatever way I want and do whatever I want and believe whatever I want and you cannot tell me otherwise, well this is a misunderstanding of Christian liberty. 
Anyone who under the pretense of our liberty practices sin or cherishes lust has destroyed the liberty that Christ has won for us. As this paragraph continues, the divines tell us the end of our Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Here is the purpose of Christ's work and our Christian liberty. We are not set free so that we might sin more, but instead we are set free so that we might serve the Lord without fear, that we might serve him in holiness and righteousness both today and all the days of our life. In this instance, the divines have directly quoted from Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 1 verses 74 to 75, lifted from the prophecy of Zechariah. We, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So the divines are clear. Christian liberty is not an excuse to sin. And indeed anyone who uses Christian liberty as a reason or pretense to sin has destroyed the end of Christian liberty. And indeed the Lord Jesus would argue that they have become a slave to sin. In John 8 and verse 34, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And as Paul writes in Galatians 5 and 13, this is not the Christian walk, for we were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Christ has truly set us free. But that freedom is not and should not and cannot be used as an excuse to sin. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 and 16 that we are to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Here is the Christian life. Here is the walk in front of us, not a walk that we say, oh, we're free to do whatever we want, but instead understanding Christian liberty and living as servants of a holy God. And as paragraph 4 begins, this teaching is incredibly practical. The divines write that because the power which God has ordained and the liberty which Christ has purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who under pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. Here the Westminster divines simply mean that Christian liberty cannot be used to say that the government of the land in which we are in has nothing to do with us. Christian liberty cannot be used to say that no church elder, no congregation can exercise any power over us. If we believe that Christian liberty makes us kings of our own castle and makes us free from any civil or ecclesiastical power, then we have misread the scriptures. We have misunderstood Christian liberty and indeed, ultimately, we are resisting God himself. We see something of this at the minute in the midst of the COVID situation. Many churches have shut down basically every aspect of their work. We have locked down and stayed away from public worship for as long as we've been told to. We've sought to honour Caesar and we've tried to listen to the advice that Caesar has given us. 
However, there are some Christians who have argued that the government has no right and no business in ordering the church to do anything. Now, in issues of the gospel, in issues of biblical truth, I would absolutely agree. However, in the issue of the pandemic, I couldn't disagree more. The Lord has placed the governing authorities over us. And therefore it is, as Paul says in Romans 13 and verse 1 onwards, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Again, I want to stress here that if Boris Johnston came out tomorrow and told churches that they should never again preach the gospel, then we have a duty to resist. However, at this instance, the government have advised us for safety of our community to stay distant from one another, to wear face masks and on occasion not to meet at all. Whilst all of this has caused great frustration in the Christian church, we should obey and respect the governing authorities in this instance. Under the pretense of Christian liberty to snub our nose at the government, the civil authorities, we are in effect resisting Almighty God. It is the same situation in the local church. As Reformed Christians, we believe that every church should have elders, that is, qualified men appointed by God to oversee the spiritual work of the church. The elder should devote himself to the word of God and to prayer, and on occasion the elder is forced to make decisions which are often entirely unpopular within the local church. Elders don't always get these decisions right, however we are duty bound by the word of God to respect and to obey those decisions. The apostle writes in Hebrews 13 and verse 17 that we are to obey our leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over our souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we have seen in both Romans and then again in Hebrews, we are to be subject to both civil and ecclesiastical authorities. Any other approach is to snub our nose at the institutions that God himself has been put in place. Instead, the Christian approach to such institutions is outlined for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He writes in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Here we find the practical outworking of Christian liberty. It isn't a cover, a veil for evil and sin. It isn't an excuse to live however we please, both outside the church and inside. Indeed, our freedom sets us free from the commandments and doctrines of men that are contrary to the word of God, and it sets us free to live as servants of God. The Church of Jesus Christ, therefore, is not a place where anything goes. As the Westminster Divines continue, they say that the publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices that are against the light of nature or against the known principles of Christianity should lead the individual holding those opinions or publishing them to account. At times the Church must be involved in Church discipline. 
the reason given here is that such opinions and such practices can bring destruction to the external peace and order which Christ has established in his church. We should never take lightly anyone who seeks to cause trouble in the local church. Such individuals may at times think that they are walking a righteous path, but if they are bringing destruction to the peace of the local church, if they are causing difficulties and division by the publishing of their incorrect opinions or maintaining of sinful practices, then they are to be censured, called to account by the spiritual overseers of the local congregation. All of these things are incredibly unpopular in the modern church, but they are all incredibly biblical. Christian liberty of conscience does not allow us to live and act and believe and say whatever we want, both outside and inside the church. And if such actions or opinions bring division to the local fellowship, then you rightfully and biblically can expect to be called to account. Such opinions or practices may be contrary to the light of nature, or in other words, such opinions and practices may even be seen to be wrong by the outside world. This was the problem in Corinth. In chapter 5 of Paul's first letter, he writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Paul is clear that what is going on in Corinth is contrary to the light of nature. And so at times, such practices need to be opposed and discipline needs to be exercised. But also such opinions and practices go against the known principles of Christianity. If an individual within the local fellowship deviates from orthodox Christian teaching, then we're not to receive such an individual. John writes in his second letter, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. We are to have no truck with false teaching. We are not to tolerate it and we are not to allow it to exist just because we have misunderstood Christian liberty. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 14, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. And then in Titus 3 and verse 10, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. We see Christian church discipline throughout the scriptures. And even though it is difficult and unpopular, we should take it seriously and we should engage in it if there are those in our fellowship who publish such opinions or maintain such practices which go against the light of nature or against the known principles of Christianity. And if we meet those who deliberately stir up division in the local fellowship by such opinions or by such practices, then church discipline must be exercised and we ourselves are to have nothing further to do with such a person. This all sounds incredibly harsh, but look at it this way, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6 and verses 3 to 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. We can allow no such things to take place and to take root in our local fellowships and Christian liberty should never be abused to introduce teaching that goes against the known principles of God's word or that is contrary to the light of nature. Such an individual can rightly expect to be called to account. And again, the scriptures are not silent on what that process looks like. In Matthew 18 verses 15 to 17, the Lord Jesus tells us how we are to address a brother who has sinned against us or someone perhaps who has published opinions or maintained practices that are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The Lord's path is full of grace. At every point, we wish to see the brother restored. But if he refuses to listen, first to you, and then to you and two or three witnesses, and if he still refuses to listen to the elders of the church of Jesus Christ, then such an individual is to be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. Or in other words, they are to be handed over to Satan, as Paul would write in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 20. Once more, this sounds incredibly harsh, but the goal of Christian discipline is never to humiliate or to destroy, but to see brothers and sisters who have gone wrong to be restored to full fellowship. Christian liberty does not allow us to believe and say and think and act and publish opinions or teaching or to live however we want. Instead, it is to set us free to live every day unto God. But if the Matthew 18 path is followed and such an individual does not listen, then either the church or the civil magistrate can proceed against such an individual with censures. In the case of a church, the elders of a fellowship can excommunicate an individual. They can put an individual outside the bounds of church membership for such a time until that individual repents and is restored to good standing. And in the case of the civil magistrate, they can rightly, in the sight of God, punish Christians who have disobeyed the law of the land. That may be if a Christian is caught drinking and driving or is stealing or committing some other sin. Church liberty in such an instance cannot be used as an excuse and cannot protect them from the power that God has given to the civil magistrate. Paul writes in Romans 13 that rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority, asked Paul? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, then be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. My brothers and sisters, in Christ we are free. 
We have a Christian liberty that has set us free from sin and from the fear of judgment and hell. And we have a liberty of conscience which tells us that we are free from the doctrines and commandments of men that are contrary to the word of God. But our Christian liberty is not a cloak for wrongdoing, either within the church or outside. And the Lord has put in place the civil magistrate and the church leadership to punish those who deliberately destroy the peace of local fellowships or break the laws of the land. And so our goal for the brand new year is just as we are at peace with the Lord through faith in Christ, then may we too strive for peace with our neighbour in the secular world and peace with our brothers and sisters in the Christian church. Jesus did not die for a divided bride. Instead, he died for his bride, for his people, united by his precious blood. And so may our Christian liberty be used to strengthen that bond and to always strive for a precious peace. As always today, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. True or false? Christian liberty means that the Christian is free to live however they want. Question 2. What is the end or goal of Christian liberty? Question 3. The Christian must always strive to honour Caesar, but when is it appropriate to deny the civil authorities? Question 4. In Matthew 18, Jesus clearly outlines steps towards discipline and restoration. Outline those steps. And question 5. According to Romans 13 and verse 4, why does the civil magistrate carry a sword? Friends, that's all for today. It is the 31st of December 2020. And so let me wish you all a very happy new year. Thank you for listening to this podcast over 2020. It has been a difficult year for us all, but we pray that we will have a better year in 2021 and we will return with this podcast and more teaching on the Westminster Confession very, very soon. But until then, God bless you all. Happy New Year. And until next time, this we confess. Mm -hmm.